it is absolutely true that you just grapple with your lack of understanding of how uh, your work um, will connect with others. But you have the sort of breadcrumb trails of what's happened with other movies and you just keep keep going until you feel like it really is the thing that you you've done your best, right? And at this moment in time, that's all you got. Hello, and welcome to Fusion Voices, the brand new podcast by Fusion Film Festival. Fusion is NYU's premier festival that celebrates women and non-binary creators in film, TV, and new media. I'm Skylar Barefoot. And I'm Carly Klein. Today, we have the pleasure of introducing our first guest host, Lucy Wachowiak, who interviews the wonderful Kirsten Johnson. Kirsten Johnson is a cinematographer and documentary filmmaker whose career spans over 50 films across two decades. Her film, Dick Johnson is Dead, premiered at Sundance Film Festival in 2020, where it won the Special Jury Award for Innovation in Nonfiction Storytelling. Thank you for listening to Fusion Voices. Okay, now that it's just us, um, I want to welcome you to Fusion Voices. I want to start out with a conversation about Dick Johnson is Dead, because I just love the movie. And, you know, I think everyone is wondering, how is Dick Johnson? Ah, hi, Lucy. Well, Dick Johnson is a... He's like a miracle. Uh, He is alive. And, you know, as we all know, I want him to stay alive forever. So I'm into that, that he's still alive. He's in a dementia care facility um, outside of Washington, D.C., near my brother. Um, And he, I spoke to him yesterday, and he now often integrates news of the world into our conversations. So he said to me, oh, are you calling from Mars today? (laughs) And I said, do I feel that far away? And he said, no, you always feel really close when you call. Um, So he's in sort of incredible spirits, but and also in the couple of times um, that I've been able to visit him um, this fall since he moved there, he just, when I visit him in person, he is desperate for me to take him home. And so when he doesn't see me and isn't reminded that he's not with me, he's fine. But as soon as he sees me, he's like, where's the car? Let's get out of here. So it's intense. Yeah, I definitely, I know that in my own experience, I lived with a lot of grandparents who had dementia and they only want to get out. You know, they always feel that way. But, you know, it, you have to do what's best for them often. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm, I'm so, you know, both... Uh, in solidarity and empathetic with you that you have had the experience of loving people with dementia because it's, as you know, very um, profound and intense experience. And I just think it's so interesting that idea of getting out, right? That they want to leave or go somewhere or have independence or drive a car. Um, I just think it must be so confusing inside of the experience that like some part of the self is saying like, there's gotta be somewhere else to go. (laughs) My dad would often um, in the middle of the night come in and wake me up and and say, when is this plane we're on going to land? You know, one of the things I I wondered about um, when watching this movie is that you have so much footage of your father. You have this whole span of time from, you know, very early on in the dementia onset to, you know, very late. 
And I wonder like how that changed your perspective of what had been going on with your father. And if, you know, I know I wish that I had uh, documentation of like certain milestones. And I wonder if uh, how that changed your experience of taking care of someone mm. with dementia. Yeah, well, you know, I really identify with that sort of wish of having evidence of people. Um, and it's certainly how I feel in relation to my mother that I that I have very little um, documentary evidence of her and I wish I had more. Um, you know, it's interesting that you say, like, I have so much footage of my dad. In fact, um, you know, I've been a documentary camera person for about 30 years and I filmed as little as possible making this project. Um, but what I've learned over the years of being a documentarian is that, you know, certain situations um, like uh, my father leaving his office or like us moving out of our house that he had been in for 50 years, um, you know something's going to happen. You know it's going to be emotional. You don't know how or when. Um, so in some ways you can film for very small, discrete amounts of time and you're guaranteed something unexpected is going to happen. And, you know, I missed many moments of um, my father's dementia actually in action. You know, him waking me up in the middle of the night and saying, there's a patient downstairs, let's go. I didn't have a camera by my bedside, um, even though I did have a camera in the house. Um, and that's always the experience with... Um, working on documentaries, even that, that thing of, oh, I wish I had more footage or different footage is a constant feeling because one, you can't film all the time and filming all the time would change everything. And so you inevitably, even if you're like dedicated like I was over the course of three years to de filming my father's transitions um, further and further into dementia, I still was just like missing things all the time. So, and I had the feeling that I, I was failing and that um, I had failed to capture the person that he was because it felt like that person had already transformed so much. Um, but I think the other thing to keep in mind about Dick Johnson is Dead is that it is a constructed film. And we very willfully uh, engaged in sort of cinema trickery and magic. And in some ways, like, we rebuilt my father and made him less uh, far along in his dementia and then let the dementia catch up with the movie. Um, so, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which um, we were playful about how the dementia entered the scene. But one thing I will say in answer to your question is like, one is always out of sync with dementia, right? Every, as you know, like every single day, even in the course of one hour, a person can go from being completely lucid to completely lost and back again multiple times. So to be a person who is trying to keep up with that, um, you're always out of sync. Yeah, and to go along with that kind of idea of what is the boundary and how much can you really capture of real life. I mean, this is a, you talk about this a lot in the film that you have to balance what parts you're willing to show to the world and what parts you're more private about. But 
you know, how do you really judge in the moment what is the right boundary? I mean, you talk about how he's so willing to do anything for you because, you know, he's your dad. But when do you have to say, okay, this is where I have to stop? This is, or even in editing, this is where I have to leave it out. You know, um, I, this is sort of a set of questions that I have been engaged with my entire filming life. And in the previous film, Camera Person, you know, which is basically sort of a memoir of my life as a camera person using footage that I shot for all these different directors, I'm constantly asking the question of sort of where where do the ethics in this reside? Where is the line? When do you stop filming? When do you start filming? Um, and there's a scene in that film in which I'm filming a couple of little boys in Bosnia playing with an axe. And um, for us, that um, piece of footage was the, the strongest piece of footage I had to express that ethics have to be navigated in every moment. Uh, and so that, you know, in that in that scene, I'm like, whoa, those two little boys have an axe. And it's like, oh, it's okay. That older boy has control. No, that axe, he just pulled it out. No, you know, and, and you're riding this edge um, that I think is familiar to anyone who has parented children, right? Uh, if you have little children, like I did, I have twins. And one moment when they were very little, I was out having a meal with them near NYU um, on LaGuardia Place. And um, they both ran from the balcony where we were having the lunch in opposite directions towards oncoming traffic. And they'd never done anything like that before. They were just learning to walk and run and they just like went for it. I was completely unprepared for it. I didn't know it was unsafe to be there with them by myself. And I had to, you know, do the Sophie's choice, like, which one do I run after first? Uh, (laughs) And happily, I caught both of them, right? But um, life does this to us all the time. There's not a, there's, there is, um, I think we have responsibility to other people, right? Obviously, I have responsibility to keep my children safe and my father safe as he moves into dementia. And yet that line of where safe and unsafe is, is a moving target. And that's true when you're filming any other person, um, whether it's okay or not okay that you're filming them in a particular moment is unstable. It's an unstable element. Um, one of the things I, I think about is trust and the fact that Trust is always um, being earned, um, but trust can be broken in a moment, even after decades of trust building. Um, So obviously I have this really loving relationship with my father and he trusted me. Um, And yet I and he knew that he would be in my hands. and that he knew that I'd never made a comedy before and he really wanted it to be a funny film. (laughs) So that was another part of like, I had to honor the film as well as honor my father. Yeah, you know, I really love those moments where he says, oh, who would want to watch a movie about me? And, you know, I would, I love this movie. Um, But, you know, I could see how putting your personal life out there and, you know, being very vulnerable with a large audience can be really difficult which I think especially something that documentarians tend to shy away from. 
you know, letting people in and kind of showcasing your life, you're probably subject to a lot of scrutiny by the audience. So how has that experience been as, you know, someone who's usually behind the camera instead? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Camera Person is really the first film in which I... I bring my personal life into my filmmaking. I've directed other films about the criminal justice system. uh, And, you know, I was never, you never knew that it was me that was making it. Um, And I learned so much from camera person. Um, Just as a human uh, and also about filmmaking and um, about sort of this this question of what does it mean to try to um, render in images uh, the experiences of other people. And um, the experience of it was so meaningful. The making of it was so meaningful to me. And I was incredibly hard on myself throughout the making of it. Um, I, I held myself to a really high ethical standard. I had um, real questions about what I perceived to be failings of my own and mistakes that I had made. And I, I would say when I started working on the film, in some ways I was like at the point of self-punishing around how little I felt the documentaries that I had worked on had done in the world. And sort of, you know, I'd been working on social justice films for 25 years. And I was like, you know, we ended no genocide. We did not finish poverty, you know. And and I think, you know, idealism and aspiration to um, fight against the injustices that exist in this world is what is responsible for so much important work. And also the world is incredibly complex. And, you know, if it was that easy to end racism, there are a lot of magnificent people who would have done it long before me or us, right? It's, it's ongoing work and very difficult work. And there are forces of power sort of assembled against us. Um, And, So, you know, as you see, you've asked me a question about the personal and I'm talking about the political. Um, I I was in some ways um, needing to affirm that there were more people than just the director making a film, that um, making images with people has a long tail. It goes on and on and on, and the images stay in the world. And it, I, I think of it as images are relationships, and they create new relationships. So you say, yeah, I want to watch Dick Johnson. Well, we didn't know you when we were making the film, but now the film has led us to meet you. And I will tell my father today when I call him on the phone about you. Right, and that's a relationship that the film creates and the images create. And I think we have these very simplest ideas uh, about like privacy and intimacy and sharing. And and I had them too before I made Camera Person. It was like if I share those things about myself, I'll be judged. If I share those things um, about myself, I will be found failing or wanting. Um, I will be accused of things. Um, And then with the film, I realized I have to own certain things about my limitations, about the contradictions of the world, about my own failings. And when I do that, people can relate to me. 
and people can help me learn new things about myself. So I learned all kinds of things by um, showing camera person, not just in the making, but then when I started showing it and audiences started telling me things about what they saw in the film, it blew my mind, some of the things that people told me. I learned every time I did a Q&A, I learned something about myself. Um, and I kind of got hooked on that uh, in terms of um, saying, you know, there's all these things that humans don't understand. We don't understand the nature of time. We don't understand the nature of consciousness. We don't understand what the line between life and death is. We're all in denial about death. Cinema introduces us to dead people all the time. Buster Keaton is dead. Marilyn Monroe is dead. And yet, boom, there they are alive when we watch the movies. So I just became very intrigued, like, what can we do in this experiment? And I realized nothing can take away the relationship that I have with my father. It can only expand on it. And it is in a moment of deep change. And I'm sharing part of that change with the world and connecting to everyone who, you know, is afraid of facing uh, the fear of losing the person they love the most. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And I think your insight into that is something that I think young filmmakers, like those who will be listening to this podcast, um, often feel, even though we're still young, it's it's nice to see that, you know, that other people feel the same thing, even if we don't believe that they will. Oh, yeah. And hello, young filmmakers. And like, hello, all of you who, who like, you know, you have an aspiration, you have a wish to make something meaningful, you have a wish to be seen. But you also have a contradictory wish, you're terrified to be seen, you it's terrifying to be criticized, it's terrifying to um, make mistakes. Uh, and what I feel like I'm learning as I go forward is like the more that we cop to um, our mistakes, that's meaningful. But also like certain mistakes, like don't make them 12 times, you know. Uh, and, and, and it's like very simple, like word choice, like, oh, OK, like a few years ago, I learned like it's not it. It is wrong to say the word slave. You are talking about an enslaved human, right? And and that simple like shift of language, we're also used to using the first word. We have to learn to use new words, and we make mistakes. But at a certain point, like come on, get with the program, right? So so there's a push pull, and I think especially when you're in college, and it was like this for me when I was in college um, in the late '80s. People were incredibly critical of each other's word choice because you're, you're sort of emerging away from your family. You get this chance to be on your own uh, with a bunch of other young people and your identity is really like on display. But you're also crafting it and you and you want to be someone different than you are and you don't feel like you're quite yet you yet. And, you know, so so there's all of this sort of tension and shift happening. But then there's all this like super intense holding each other to account of like, you said that word. You didn't say that word. Ugh. And um, I love both the rigor of that. And I also urge everyone to. um like search for those standards, aspire to those standards, and also be kind 
to yourself because we're all like born into a particular legacy and we're learning from the world and the world is hiding things from us. And, you know, it takes a while to like start to get some perspective. Um, and particularly as young filmmakers, I think being kind to yourself is important. I also think just the idea of noticing where your shame is located and how that shame in whatever its form or whatever it's connected to um, makes you fearful about expressing the things that you think and feel. Yeah, so going with that idea of young filmmakers, um, you're an NYU professor, so you work with people our age all the time. And has how has that experience kind of changed how you view not only like where documentary is going, but like how you progress as a filmmaker? One, it just makes me so excited about what's happening. Um, I feel such an explosion of perspectives um, coming into storytelling and filmmaking. And, you know, I work in the journalism department at NYU. Um, so also in terms of journalism and news gathering, um, I see incredible pressure on all of you. I, I, I you know, and, and I have incredible uh, feeling for like, what a bummer to like be in college during COVID. Like, you know, like I really feel for you all. It is a loss to not get to be together at this stage in your lives. Um, the other thing I will offer to you and something that I always sort of wished and sought in my life was to be in history. And I, I felt like I was sort of disconnected from history and I had to go towards finding like, where is history located? Uh, was sort of an idea of mine when I was young um, because my family was so religious and so sort of disconnected from um, the social political landscape. And I got to say, right now, we're all in history together. This period of the pandemic that we don't know how long it will last and we don't know how it's changing us as humans um, is unprecedented in human history. And not that there haven't been other global pandemics before, but the fact of our interconnectedness, that we know it's happening to everyone and that we can get on Zooms and talk to people from other parts of the world and read the news about it, it means that it is, it is happening at a scale that we actually can't understand as humans, but we're being forced to engage with it. And so I just think it's going to change us in ways we don't understand yet. And we, we can't understand it because we don't know where it's going. But, you know, you, you are a generation you will be a generation transformed. Um, and, you know, I think we all are going to need incredible flexibility and resilience as we move into the future. Um, and we're also just lucky to be alive. And so all of those things are really contradictory feelings. So I think just for all the young filmmakers and students um, know that I think all these highs and lows that you're experiencing make so much sense. Um, and also know in some crazy way, like 
I felt the same things in the late 1980s when I was like, I want to be a filmmaker. All the, how am I ever going to do it? I don't know anybody. I don't, you know, like I didn't have a background in film. Um, you know, my mother, I think, wanted to be a photographer, be more of an artist, and she was thwarted by being a woman in her period in history. Um, my parents were very conventional and conservative in lots of ways, but they also loved us wildly and sort of encouraged possibility. And, you know, I think my parents had traveled to a couple of countries in their lifetime, and I've traveled to 86 in mine. Um, but the pandemic may mean like all of us stop traveling. Like that may be what the future is, right? Uh, we don't know. And so to think of yourself as like a part of a generation, but that in every time that someone is 18, 19, 20 years old, you're full of questions, you're full of energy, you're full of rage, you're full of desire, you're full of hope. And it's like fantastic. <laughs> and you also know who you are. Like, I think that's the, like, really listen to, like, what you care about, what you think is the most important, what you want to explore with your life, what you want to make. Just trust those, trust those feelings and those thoughts. Yeah, so um, I definitely want to get into your career and some questions about that. But before we switch gears entirely, um, let me ask one more question about Dick Johnson is Dead. Um, we were wondering... Uh, if you ever ended up showing your father the full cut of the film and what he thought of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, Dad's seen the film hundreds of times. Um, he watched it. He watched all of the footage while we were making it. He had comments about, you know, deaths not being funny enough. He wanted to add VFX blood to when he was down on the ground, at, you know, at the base of the staircase. Um, but... You know, the dementia has advanced to the place where he can watch it and not know it's part of a full movie. He'll just be watching in the present moment of a scene. And he's always glad to see his friends again, to revisit our house again. Um, so it's like a portal for him into his own life. Um, and gives it, it always gives us new ways to talk about what's happening to him. And now that he's in the dementia care facility, they've watched it a bunch of times. And all the caregivers tell me they've showed their family members and it's helping people have conversations, which is so cool. Um, uh, yeah, so I definitely want to switch gears a little bit just because we're about halfway through our time. So um, I want to ask what initially drew you to documentary as a medium? You know, I'm just one of these people who like the world is just like, fascinating. I think that's true of most people. Um, I, I was initially drawn to, um, fiction filmmaking. That's what I encountered in movie theaters, um, when I was in college and I had the great chance to see a lot of international films when I was in college. So, you know, I got really excited by some West African films that I saw. I recently did a carte blanche uh, at the Metrograph Cinema, um, and I listed several films that had influenced me early in my life and, you know, um, connect to Dick Johnson, and one of those was this beautiful film called Yelene, made by Suleiman Sisse, a Malian filmmaker. Um, so I, was, I had seen that film, I saw 
Tuki Buki by Jibril Jabambedi. I saw films by Usman Semben, and I was like, wow, you know, what's this? And and then I also saw films in Brazil, a Brazilian films that I was really excited about. And um, so after college, I went and I lived in Senegal and met a lot of those um, West African filmmakers. And one of them recommended that I go to film school in Paris, where the film school was free. Um, and I was thinking I wanted to go as a director and make fiction films. Uh, and then when I went to apply to the school, it was very clear, like, they had never admitted an American. I had a very slim chance of getting in. And someone said, you know, you should sneak in through one of the technical departments. So I snuck in uh, through the camera department, and um, then I just fell in love with the camera. And it was like, oh my goodness, this is the center of everything. Um, and you know, because in documentary you don't have to construct the world, the world is there, um, and all you have to do is show up with a camera. Uh, that's what I started doing, and I got asked, because I could speak French and because I spoke English, to shoot on a film about Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher, while I was in film school. And that was such a profound experience to be in the home of such a brilliant person, watching him think and work. And I just kept sort of thinking like, how am I here? How did I get here? How can I do this? How is this happening? Um, and that feeling, I think, is part of um, what's pulled me forward in documentary, just like this total marvel at like, how did I get here? And I can't believe I get to do this feeling. But, but I also will say like, just to be clear for everyone who's out there, I was also wrong place, wrong time. Like I, um, I had this plan when I was graduating from college that they had a grant they would give you if you came up with a really good project. And so my project was to go to Brazil and West Africa and London and Paris. And I wanted to see what all these black filmmakers, um, the way that they were relating to racism and blackness in all these different places. And I made it um, to the shortlist and then I didn't get it. And I was so devastated and I was so embarrassed, talk about shame. Uh, all my other friends knew what they were gonna do and they were gonna move to New York and be artists or go be filmmakers and I didn't know what I was gonna do. And um, so sort of out of my embarrassment that I hadn't gotten the grant, I, I worked all summer and I bought a ticket and I went to Dakar, Senegal, knowing nothing. <laughs> and I hustled and figured out a way to stay there for two years. Um, and that really changed my life. But probably like 15 years later, I was on the set of a film um, in Brazil, talking in Portuguese to this amazing uh, Afro-Brazilian star named Lazaro Ramos. It was his first film. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I did it. Like. I speak Wolof, I speak French, I speak Portuguese, I've lived in Paris, I've lived in Brazil, I've lived in West Africa. And it was, I was like, oh, you know, when I was in college, I thought I could do it all in a year. And I have done it all in 15 years because it's what I wanted to do. And I muddled my way towards it. So, I mean, I think that's why I really want to encourage all of you. It's like, your life is your life. 
and you're going to invent it and you're going to walk towards it and there will be so many obstacles and you will fail so many times. But if you're walking in the direction you're interested in walking in, then like, you know, right on. And I can't even tell you, like there's moments in Dakar, I remember I watched a, there was a film called Sous le Soleil de Satin by Maurice Piella. And I was watching it and I was trying to learn French and I just cried through the whole movie because I couldn't understand anything. And I was like, I'm never gonna learn how to speak French, (laughs) you know? So you have these moments of deep despair that like what you wish and dream of is impossible and you don't know how you're gonna get there. Um, But you just got to like, okay, well, I I guess it's really hard for me to learn French, but I still want to try. Yeah, that's really great advice. And, you know, I think it's the kind of advice that young people get sick of hearing, but I think that it's really great. What part do you think you get sick of? Like, what's the... The, the fact that it's going to take longer? I think, I think when, you're, when you're young, I think that people can agree that it gets really competitive and it gets really, you know, cutthroat, especially when you see other people succeeding faster than you or, you know, achieving things that you wish you were achieving. I think people tend to, to like, judge themselves very harshly, especially, I think, women filmmakers. Um, Absolutely. Which is you know, why, why we are so encouraging infusion of other young filmmakers is because it's just so difficult. Yeah. But I think, um, even if you sort of went to the ends of like what you wish to hear, like I will succeed easily. There will be no competition. I will get to do everything I wish to do. Um, like if you were to say those things out loud to yourself, like, you know, they're false. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's competition is such a profound, complex thing. And, and, and we, we are like so often defeated by it. And also it, it pushes us. Right. Um, so it's a very mixed, mixed bag. And, you know, I'm the, I have an older brother who was almost a prodigy. He was so, so amazing young that I sort of felt like I was, I would always come in second for my entire life. You know, like that, that feeling has stayed with me through so much of my life, um, which in some ways has freed me to be like, I'll never be, I'll never be seen or recognized or important. And like, you know, I got a text this morning from my brother saying like, I can't believe what this film keeps giving me because people keep contacting him and talking to him about it. And he wrote me like, I'm just, it means so much to me that you made this film. And it's like, wow, I'm being like recognized by my brother. Like the person who I'm like, like, you know, our sort of deepest child competitions um, that are so important for so much of the first halves of our lives or our entire lives, if they're unhealthy competitions, um, they shake out in such interesting ways over time. Um, but I think I think part of being young is being sick of older people telling you how it is and what to do and whatever. Like, yeah, like do it your way. You know, defy me, show me that things have changed and are different, like go for it. Like that makes me so happy and that makes me happy with the students I work with. And, um, you know, I'm so incredibly, incredibly, 
like blown away by the successes of some of the students I've worked with, like Yamish Alcindor, who, you know, is on the um, PBS NewsHour and is the White House correspondent, like Nanfu Wong, who made Hooligan Sparrow and One Child Nation and In the Same Breath. And they are like blowing me away that they have done as much as they've done so early in their lives. And then there are other students who I know it's going to be a slower build, but wow, I can't wait to see what they're going to make, you know? And, but I know they have to grapple with, how come Yamish and Namfu are like the superstars? Um, and I know that's hard. Yeah, so I want to ask one thing, since we're a women's and women and non-binary film festival, um, how has your experience, especially as a cinematographer, been affected by that idea. I mean, just last night I was thinking about maybe this is a little too heady for this conversation, but too heady for me. Come on, Lucy. I am heady. I define heady. <laughs> There's this Sylvia Plath quote about wanting to be a man because you can blend in and you can be like more secure with. I think the quote goes like, "I want to walk among sailors. I want to walk." in the bars and talk with everyone, but it's just so hard because you have to be aware of yourself a little more when you're a woman. And especially since you have such a, a long and uh, fruitful career in many different countries, I just wonder like how that experience has been for you. Well, you know, I do believe some of the limitations that Sylvia faced still exist and uh, mental illness is still one of the you know greatest challenges of <laughs> being a human um, that she you know that she obviously suffered from and eventually killed herself because of um, I the good news is there are women everywhere and often not only are they um, have they been through it, have generations before them been through it, but they have solidarity and they encourage you and they watch your back. Um, so, you know, in all the countries I've been in the world, I felt um, the presence of women supporting me and helping me and cheering me on. Um, you know, I think our physical bodies, um, they really impact our chances in the world um, and, you know, to be physically able or to be less able or differently able, all of those, you know, are part of um, what's made easy or not easy by the systems of the world and, you know, sort of who can be, um, you know, I think we know so much about the, the violence that gets directed against so many women. Um, and when you go out, out into the world, it's incredibly painful to be like, oh, that's true everywhere. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, oh. And I think, you know, our reproductive capacities mean that we represent power uh, and we are threatening and we can disrupt people's lives you know, that, that someone might have sex with us and then be called to account of like, okay, now you're going to have a child who's going to exist. That's scary. Like, it's actually our power that people are afraid of in many ways and seek to destroy, right? 
Um, but I, I just want to acknowledge, like, I'm a very tall person. I am almost six foot two. And I know that has sort of aligned me with the male dominant world in terms of size. And it's just been harder for men to patronize me or objectify me because I'm kind of whatever. I look them in the eye. Um, and I know that's not true for my colleagues who are much smaller. They've had different kinds of obstacles, right? But it depends where you are. I got to Senegal and everyone was super tall and I was like sort of a, an average sized woman. And it was so fascinating to meet all these like really tall, really powerful women. And they kept saying to me like, why are you slumping? And I was like, oh, because I'm too big where I come from. And they were all like, be bigger, be bigger, be prouder of who you are, be bigger. And that was just like, oh, wow. So, and sometimes you have to like, go into the world and seek out your people who will help you figure out like, how can I, how can I be? Um, and, you know, I have so much extraordinary um, respect for Agnes Varda and her filmmaking career. And I got a chance to meet her and um, it just so happened. I was sitting down and she came in and sat down and we had this long conversation and then I stood up. And she is not tall at all. And she was kind of horrified at how tall I was. And she said a very, you know, sort of typical uh, French expression. She was like, you're impossible. Almost like, and it wounded me so deeply. I was like, Agnes Varda, who has been everything. Like, she's saying, I am impossible. You know, in some ways, like, I should not exist in this body. And I think about like all the woundings um, that that women can do to each other because we're afraid for each other. Mothers are afraid for daughters. Um, older filmmakers are afraid for younger filmmakers. You know, you don't want people to experience hurt, but sometimes we then hurt people <laughs> by doing that, right? Um, and I think we've got a long way to go as humans to really be interested in our differences, really affirm and, and attempt to understand them. And I do think cinema is one of the ways that we do this work, because cinema is an expression of an individual language, um, and you express the inexpressible and, and you unearth the things that are unseen and hidden. And I think there's so much work to be done. And I am so excited that there's so many more um, female filmmakers and, um, you know, women who define themselves as women, were born as women, like who enter these sort of interstitial spaces, um, you know, people who are, who are rethinking gender and sexuality, I find so fascinating and so brave. Um, and, and it's also like, it's, it's disruptive, right? And in the disruption, people are threatened and people push back against easy targets. And so, you know, I think you have to really work to take care of yourself, 
but also to understand you're in solidarity with so many people and treat it all with a little bit of um, like humility, laughter, absurdity, and carry on. It took me a long time to be like comfortable with like, whoa, I'm such a tall woman. But it's still like, it's, it's something that's appreciated in the world. Like, oh, you could be a model, right? Um, it's different than, like there is privilege associated with it. And yet it's still out of the norm and still um, aggressed in all kinds of ways. And so it took me a long time to just own it. And going to Senegal where there are a lot of tall women helped me do that. So um, I want to ask about a different kind of safety. Um, so the non-gendered uh, kind of aspect of that. But, you know, I've no- I noticed, especially with your whole filmography and with camera person, you sort of end up in a lot of dangerous situations in foreign countries, um, especially when you work with like Al-Qaeda and other groups like that. Like, would you say that this is kind of an occupational hazard or is it something that you enjoy? I mean, not totally enjoy, but something that kind of drives you and makes you interested. Well, you know, I mean, I, th- I think it's a complicated um, response because it's a complicated question, right? I, um, I think I felt earlier in my career that, you know, being someone capable of filming in a conflict zone was a way of proving myself. Um, and I think that is so built into our world's histories and certainly into American history that, you know, things that are militarized, uh, equal power and people who have the capacity to get into the fight or near the fight, um, are heroic, you know, all of those things are like, you know, our stories we've told ourselves about who we are and who we need to be. And, it was only sort of after years of doing work and realizing like, wow, being in a maternity ward is as intense and as upsetting as being in a war, but it is much less valued because it is the lives of women that are being lost and not the lives of men that are being lost in the name of power. And so, you know, sort of unthreading, um, your the way in which we as individuals get infatuated with the stories that are told to us, right? Because um, I wanted to be taken seriously, but I was working against a world that was not taking me seriously as a camera person, right? But making camera person and the the fact that it has been received and given such recognition is so it makes me so happy on behalf of. Um, all the people who are struggling against obstacles to make what they need to make and what they believe in making. And, you know, you're just reminding me um, when we were trying to get money to make Camera Person, we went to a pitching session at Hot Docs in Canada and um, there was a panel of people who are mostly men and I did the pitch and several of the men sort of undermined it and said, I don't see how you're going to pull that off. And it was like, are you serious? Like, I shot all of the footage. You mean you think I am incapable of directing a movie using footage that I shot? Um, But that was what they said to me. And then in the week after I made the pitch, in which we got no money, um, young woman after young woman kept coming up to me and saying, oh, I really want to see your movie. I really hope you get it made. 
And it was so funny for me because I hadn't thought of it as a movie for women. I was like, I'm making a film about being a camera person. And, And then I was like, you know what? Something's up here. In some ways, I'm not even owning how meaningful it is to other people uh, that I, as a person, am paying attention to certain issues. And probably a big part of why I'm paying attention to those things is because I'm a woman and because I'm one of the few women who does this work. So, you know... I really remember by the end of that week being like, I don't care. Like, I don't know how I'm going to make this movie, but this movie needs to be made. And I know who the audience is, and I'm proud of who the audience is. Um, You know, and it turns out lots of men like camera people too, you know, camera person too. And uh, that's great. Um, But it was a revelation to me that it was needed in certain ways um, that had to do with who wasn't being seen. You know, that's actually... Uh, it's funny that you say that because in high school, so a number of years ago, I did a research project on women filmmakers. And when I was researching women women cinematographers, you were actually one of the people who came up and your film camera person. That was the first time I really had heard of the film camera person. So it's interesting that you didn't think of it that way because it clearly did become something of a, a landmark for women filmmakers. Yeah, I'm so proud. It makes me really proud. Um and, and it just shows you in some ways how you have blind spots about yourself and what's, you know, I really struggled to make camera person and I was really uncertain that anyone would relate to it or it would make sense to anyone. And it, it's just been such a joy and a revelation that it matters to other people. Um, but it was unfamiliar to me when I made it. I was like, what is this? This doesn't even resemble me. I, I was so uncomfortable with all that it had become. And I think, you know, we did, we, we were in the territory of new language. And so I didn't recognize it. And I think that's what, um, it's really hard when you're a young filmmaker, you're like, I want to be Werner Herzog, or I want to be Anya Varda, or I want to be, you know, and while I was making camera person, I had those wishes. And then at a certain point, you sort of break through and you're like, I'm not Werner Herzog. I'm not Anya Varda. I'm Karsten Johnson. And this is, this is what I have. And it feels inadequate to me. Turns out it's meaningful to other people. And that's what you're, you're, you're struggling through. Like, what do I what do I need to grapple with in this work? And, you know, like, how can I make humor out of dementia and death? Like, I'm going to kill myself trying and hope to hell it gets through to other people. But you know what I mean? It's, I think it is absolutely true that you just grapple with your lack of understanding of how uh, your work um, will connect with others. But you have the sort of breadcrumb trails of, what's happened with other movies and you just keep keep going until you feel like it really is the thing that you you've done your best right and at this moment in time that's all you got so with camera person i actually was really struck by the level of empathy that you have that you can kind of feel through the camera through your filmmaking especially the connection you had with the family in Bosnia um but you can kind of like see that you form a connection with these people that you are filming which is I think often something that 
you're told not to do as a document as a documentary filmmaker you're kind of told to be neutral but you seem to go the other way and how how has that changed kind of your interaction with your work and the people you're working with well you know i think um there are tested ways of doing things there are old ways of doing things there are ways of doing things that are exploitive um, and the history of cinema is a mess. You know, like the history of cinema has like deeply misrepresented lots of people and has been abusive to people and, and created mythologies that the director is the only person who made a film when in fact there were 300 people laboring under difficult conditions to make it. Um, so we have to acknowledge that like, we want to learn how to make films, and yet the history of filmmaking is strewn with ugliness. And there's all these paths to making films that are not great. <laughs> but filmmaking is like, you know, it's like you're compressing. It's like time, money, imagination, all squeezed together in this pressure cooker. And people don't always behave well, right? And people don't always behave well, period. Um, but... Once you sort of get over some of your fears of like, how does the camera work? I don't know what that thing's called. I'm embarrassed that I don't know how to do things. Then you start realizing that you can honor your own values in the way that you do things. That even if that experienced sound person that you're working with doesn't introduce himself to any of the people you're about to film with, you can. Um, I remember very... Um, Distinctly, I give that example because I was working on a project about um, boxers and we were waiting for the director to arrive and there were probably like 50 people, 50 young boxers in a room and we were there early. And I just got up and I walked around the room and said, hi, I'm Kirsten Johnson. I'm going to be the camera. And, and the film had the permission to film with everybody, but no one had asked them or introduce themselves personally to them. We were just going to start filming with this big bunch of people in this trial. And I walked around the room and I just, there was time to do it. And I walked around the room and introduced myself to everyone. And the sound person said, I've been working in this field for 40 years. I've never seen anyone do that. And it was just like, I was like, how would you not do that? <laughs> like, and, and so just like finding ways to be now, that wouldn't be okay if the director showed up and was like, we have to shoot now. And I got into a fight with him about, no, I have to introduce myself to everyone. That's not my place. So a lot of times you're trapped in these situations where like the ethics are not quite your own. And you're saying like, do I push back now? Do I not push back? But you start to learn, okay, I'm being professional, but I'm also not being allowed to behave the way I believe is important to behave in relation to these people. And does that mean I have a conversation with the director afterwards? Does that mean I interrupt things now? Though That's the same kind of ethical type rope that I'm talking about. But I think listen to your heart about what you believe is, um, you know, a decent way to be. And then sometimes you just make hideous mistakes doing that, <laughs> which I have certainly done also, you know, and and then it's like, oh, you're self-important. Like, you you think you need to introduce yourself to everyone? No, not in this moment, right? Um, and it's hard. It's hard to know those things. But 
Um, I think we have to create new ways of collaborating. We have to um, create new language. We have to talk more. Um, and so just follow your own instincts about it and then observe the people you respect. So uh, what is it that gets you excited about the future of documentary filmmaking? And is there anything else you would like to leave our listeners with? Um, so I'm super excited about what I learned from doing the heaven and hell sequences in Dick Johnson. Um, I learned that I can make imaginative worlds and um, be in them the way that I am in documentary, which is not trying to control outcome, um, being unsure about what's going to happen, but sort of um, being in collaboration with a bunch of people all informed and trying to make something that will be dazzling. Um, so I'm really excited about um, doing more of that. I'm excited about doing more humor in my work, uh, more imaginative work. And I think right now documentaries are on fire and um, I just think it will remain hard to make the most original work because you won't know what it's going to be until it's made. Like Camera Person, like Dick Johnson is Dead, we did not know what it would look like. It looked different than the way we imagined it. And nobody else could imagine it, so people had a hard time taking risks on it. Um, so I just think, like, if you're making really original work, you got to stay the course. Um, so maybe that's my advice, is that, like, Try, 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 try to give yourself pleasure in the making of things. That's great advice. Thank you for coming on to Fusion Voices. Um, we really appreciate you being here. This was such a great conversation. And we really want to wish you luck with everything in the future. I just, I love it that you discovered Camera Person when you were in high school and that we get to talk to each other and that, um, you know, I think that's what filmmaking does. It sort of allows these relationships to exist and continue. Um, so I'm really thrilled to have met you, Lucy and Nina and Maya. And I, I, I love the effort that you're putting into this on behalf of um, filmmakers, uh, young and old and all the way in between. So right on to your bad selves. And I hope that you make amazing films. Thank you to our guest host, Lucy Wakowiak, our producers, Lucy Wakowiak and Maya Gavant, our editor, Sarah Gabriella Long, and our mixer, Nina Leitenberg. Special thanks to the Fusion Film Festival faculty advisor, Susan Sandler, the Fusion Voices team, Skylar Barefoot, Carly Klein, Aspen Nelson, Maya Gavant, Ronnie Palsgrove, Sam Whitley, Nina Leitenberg, and introducing Sarah Gabriella Long. You can keep up with festival events like this one on Instagram at Fusion Film Fest. We'll be back soon with more episodes of Fusion Voices, so make sure to subscribe wherever you can get your podcasts. Thanks! <laughs>